Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Uh, today we're going to read two Bible lessons, first from Paul's letter to Corinth, the first letter in chapter 15, uh, where Paul reminds them about the importance and the hope of the resurrection, and then we will read the Easter story from John's gospel in John chapter 20. Both of those texts are there in your order of worship, but they'll also be on the screen. Uh, you might even turn to them in your own Bible. Whatever is best for you, I invite you to hear these words of Scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 26. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Then at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler, every authority and power. For he must reign until he he put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then the Easter story this morning comes from the gospel according to John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and all the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and placed by itself. The other disciple who reached the tomb also went in. He saw and he believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must be raised from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She wept. She bent over to look inside the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've taken him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, meaning teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the brothers and to say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, it is with great thanksgiving in our hearts that we worship today, giving thanks for the opportunity to be in this place, to be here with one another, 
to be hearing again these old stories, but certainly stories that are filled with the power of your hope and love. And so we pray today as the scriptures are read, as the word is proclaimed, as we fellowship, as we worship, as we give our gifts, that in all of these acts we would remember again the hope of the resurrection, that that joy would once again be made real in our lives and in our hearts. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Early while it was still dark. This is how John begins his telling of the Easter story. Early in the morning while it was still dark. And in doing so, he allows readers, he invites us, to remember the reality of Good Friday, the disappointment of Holy Saturday. Jesus Christ has been abandoned, has been turned over, has been arrested, has been abused, has been crucified, and has been buried. These are the realities of the story, and so John begins his Easter story with this setting, early while it was still dark. And of course, he invites us to read that that dark in sort of two ways. It's the dark of the moment. God's holy son has been put to death and has been buried in a tomb. But it's also dark in a real practical way. This is an ancient world without lights, without streetlights, without automobiles. And so you can imagine if you put yourself in the, in the scene, Mary Magdalene making her way down a, a poorly lit path, maybe just a few fires in people's homes, the light of the moonlight and the stars, Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene makes her way to the tomb. While it was still dark. Beginning the Easter story this way is sort of John's invitation to us to realize and to remember that darkness does not mean nothingness. Darkness does not mean nothingness. Most of us, of course, spend our time and our lives, uh, we spend most of our our working hours, our playing hours in the light, right, in the light. We get up in the morning when the sun comes up, we generally return home and go to bed when the sun goes down, and when we have to be at work in the dark, we turn on lights, right? We have the lights like we have in this space, you have lights in your home, we have headlights in front of our cars, we have our phone and our computers, we are surrounded by light and we are in control of the light for the most part. That's not necessarily the case in the ancient world. They were a little bit maybe more familiar with the darkness than we are. And so John is inviting us to think about what might be happening in the dark. Is the dark all bad? Or maybe is there something good happening? Barbara Brown Taylor is a wonderful preacher and writer. She's been a professor for many years and, a, and just a really gifted thinker. Uh, she wrote a book a few years ago called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And she plays with these ideas of light and darkness where where we tend to gravitate toward the light. She kind of thinks maybe there's some things in the dark we could learn as well. And so in the book, she goes on little experiments. Uh, One part of the book, she goes to a... um, uh, she goes to a cabin with no power, no electricity. She doesn't take any candles or flashlights with her. Uh, you can imagine about out in the, in the rural areas, right, where there's very little uh, city light, light pollution. And so she forces herself right, to stay there in the cabin to get comfortable with the light, uh, not being so handy, get, get comfortable being surrounded by the dark. And she writes how she sort of gets used to it. It's a little unnerving at first, but it's okay after you've been there a few days. 
in another part of the book, she, she says uh, that there are apparently restaurants you can go to that have a specific invitation where they invite people to dine in the dark, right? And you take your phone and your keys, your wallet, your eyeglasses if you have them because you're not going to need them, and you put everything in a locker, and then you're led to a private room that's totally pitch black, and they serve you your food and your drinks, and you can't see anything. The light is totally muted. And she talks about what a fun and a little bit uneasy exercise that is. She says, most people abandon their silverware because you can't do anything with your silverware anyway, so you just end up eating with your hands, kind of like a baby, right? And she said, uh, you have to pour your water in your glass with one finger in the cup to feel how much water's in there. You've got to be very careful. She said she was eating with one fella who was convinced he was getting food all over himself, so he just took off his shirt, right? Uh, he said no one could see him anyway, and he was pretty sure he was making a mess of his shirt, so he just took it off, right? And so she kind of talks about the playfulness of learning to work around the darkness. She says in one part of the story that she, she goes to a cave, right, like a cavern. We have caverns here in Arkansas, and, and you can go on the guided tour where they've run electricity and lights, but you might also get an option to go further in the cave, go through some of those, those crevices and those cracks to get really far underneath there. And in this case, she was invited to, to turn off her headlamp right? and that true, utter darkness can be a really scary thing, but it's also sort of an invitation to think about, to hear, to smell what's going on around you. And she writes in her book, she says, In all the years I've heard and preached Easter sermons, I've never heard anyone talk about the dark of the tomb. On Easter Sunday, we announce the resurrection with lilies and trumpets and music and bright light as we are here today. But the resurrection occurred in a cave in a tomb in complete silence and absolute darkness. And so she says, new life starts in the dark. New life starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground or a baby in the womb or Jesus in the tomb. Life, new life, begins in the dark. And so it is with Easter. And so we are taught that darkness maybe is not all bad. Or at least darkness does not mean that all has been lost. Darkness certainly doesn't mean that we should give up, and darkness doesn't mean the story has ended, and maybe, in fact, that it is in the darkness where God is doing some of God's most important and most powerful and most creative work. Easter begins by inviting us to wonder what good things, what miraculous things might God be doing in the dark where we can't see them. Psalm 139 says, even darkness is not dark to you. Now the story continues. You heard me read from the Gospel of John. Mary said to the others, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Peter and the other disciple, they went toward the tomb. They saw the linen wrappings lying there. The cloth was on Jesus' head. The linen wrappings rolled up in a place by itself. The other disciple, the one who got to the tomb first, he went in and he saw and he believed Yet they did not understand. He went in and he saw and he believed, yet he did not understand. Now for those of you who have heard me preach a few times now, you know I couldn't let an Easter Sunday go without talking about mathematics and physics just a little bit, right? All right, all right, bear with me, okay? 
Back in my math days at UCA, finishing undergraduate and graduate school, uh, we were invited one summer to do some work in computational analysis, computational engineering, numerical analysis. And I'm going to give you the short version here, all right? But those big equations that you see there are called the Navier-Stokes Navier equations, and they determine the, the velocity, the energy, the place of, of fluid flow right, in either 2D or 3D. They're really complicated equations. We know that they are the correct equations. We know that they work, uh, but they can't be solved theoretically, right? We don't necessarily know what the perfect answer is to the equation in all cases. What they can be, though, is they can be solved for particular initial conditions, right? And this field was really starting to grow back about 15 years ago when I was in college, right, because computers were getting so much faster, right? So the work that used to be done at a research institute or, or a big university can now be done by college students on a laptop or a basic PC. And so we were invited one summer to work on some of these problems. We were given a, a grant by NASA, uh, not, not that we were doing research that would actually help NASA, right? It's not that sort of grant, but it was a grant to help us to, to learn to enjoy that sort of research in hopes that we might grow into those sorts of fields or professions one day. And so that thing you see on the right is what I spent all summer looking at on a screen one summer, right? We drew these 2D grids of airplane wings. So if an airplane wing is cut down the middle, right, a slice of an airplane wing, and we ran repeated experiments, right, just letting the computer solve the problems for the fluid flow around the airplane wing. And it would tell us where you had the most pressure, where you had the most drag, where you had the most rise, right? So it would give you an idea of how the plane wing worked, and we were invited to think about what a more efficient airplane wing might look like. Now, for me, that was really exciting, but also very, like, unnerving because I didn't entirely know if I understood what was happening, right? Uh, we would hit enter on the computer, and the computer would start working, and, and, and then we would get a result, and we would study it and look at it. And while I understood it in theory, my limited computer science background still made me kind of wonder, I'm not quite sure I understand everything the computer's doing. Later that summer, we were invited to go to Langley Research Center, NASA's Air Research Center in Virginia, uh, and that was kind of part of the grant, to come visit with them, to see some of their work, to see some of their technological uh, uh, apparatuses, options there. And so they did a few talks and presentations for us. And then they invited us to present what we had been working on, right? Uh, anxiety is an understatement, okay? I would much rather preach to a few hundred people on Easter morning than stand in front of a few NASA engineers to talk about 2D airflow dynamics, right? And so we kind of bumbled through our talk, and I remember thinking then, like, what am I doing here, right? Do I really understand this well enough to talk about it in a way that's respectable and reasonable? And it kind of caused a little bit of a crisis, like, gosh, how do these airplane wings work, right? Do I really understand all the math that's going on behind that? Do I understand why wings take off and planes fly? Like, oh, geez, you know, sort of have an anxiety attack. Then we left the hotel, went back to the airport, checked into the airport, boarded our plane, flew from Virginia back to Little Rock, got home safely and peacefully and never thought anything about it. And I offer that to you as sort of an illustration that there are some things in life that are hard to understand, right? Like airflow around wings and why wings work and why planes can land safely. But just because you don't fully understand every detail of it doesn't mean that you don't believe in it. I mean, how many of us have hopped on planes and thought very little about how they work and if they will land safely? We believe in it. We've seen it done over and over again. We believe that planes work. There, there may be a temptation, particularly on Easter, right, to think that if we had been there with the disciples, if we had been there with those who saw Jesus, particularly those who saw him resurrected, if we had been there, then we would really believe. 
But the gospel stories make it pretty clear that no one actually saw the resurrection. Like, it, it happened in the dark. And so those earliest believers, they came to the tomb and they saw that it was empty. And even though they didn't understand, they believed. Even though they didn't understand, they believed. We've been working on this Apostles' Creed sermon series here in Lent, and so I, I like that style of teaching and preaching. I really want to understand, right? I want to do that intellectual work around the creed. I want you to understand, why is the creed important? Why do we believe these things? How does it work? But even I have to be careful because the creed doesn't say, I understand who God the Father is, the Creator, and Jesus Christ, His Son. That's not what the creed says. The creed says, I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I believe in life everlasting. So the invitation on Easter isn't to understand. This isn't a math problem to figure out. This is good news to believe. While we were working on this uh, sermon series, we were working on uh, this, this theme of believing, believing the Apostles' Creed. Uh, our fifth and sixth graders did an art project. And they put it down in the hallway where I walk through that hallway every day on the way to my office multiple times. And it included uh, this gold uh, banner that said believe on it in big letters, right? And I walked by it for weeks and I kept thinking, where have I seen this before? This big gold banner with the word believe on it. And it came to me that we had the Ted Lasso banner downstairs in the, in the first floor of the church, right? Believe. Believe in the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're not a Ted Lasso fan or if you haven't seen Ted Lasso, I'm not necessarily recommending it, okay? It's a kind of a crude show. There's some colorful language. It's not a church show, okay? Uh, but it also has these great lessons about the human condition, about love and forgiveness and patience. And so Lasso, Jason Sudeikis, he's an American football coach. He goes to England to coach a kind of floundering football team, a soccer team. And though he doesn't know anything about soccer, he knows about teamwork, he knows about compassion and care, and so he tells them they got to believe. In fact, he says, I believe and believe. I believe and believe. And so he hangs this poster in the locker room, and he kind of forces them to tap it for good luck and to draw their attention to it regularly. One TV critic writing about Ted Lasso put it this way, which I thought was so well done and, and kind of summarizes a little bit of what we're talking about this morning. Belief cannot consistently score goals or restore broken relationships, but belief can help heal in the aftermath. Change is hard. Optimism is hard. Believing in something, hoping in something especially is hard, but it is an invitation and a choice. So we have that sort of invitation here on Easter Sunday morning. We may not entirely understand the mechanics of the resurrection, what happened in that empty tomb, but like those earliest disciples, the invitation stands. Do you believe? Will you believe? Can you believe in the resurrection? All right, the story in John's gospel continues. Even after these things, the disciples saw and believed, and they returned to their homes. We're not really sure what they did when they got there. That's kind of the uh, funny part of the story. They just left. Uh, Mary stays there, and she stays weeping, and she's concerned. She's crying because she doesn't know where Jesus is. She sees these angelic figures. She sees this gardener. She's still frustrated, and she says, just tell me where you've taken him. And so Jesus, who is the gardener, says to her, Mary, calls her by name. And she turns and she says to him, Rabuni, this means teacher, teacher. And then Jesus gives her this lesson. He says, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I'm going to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. 
I think this moment is sort of funny because if you can just imagine with me, if you could put yourself in Mary's shoes, right? She's there, she's weeping, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried. Now she sees him and he's alive. I probably would have went with like, what? You know, well, don't scare me like that, right? Wow, what are you doing here? Mary goes with teacher, teacher, which is kind of a funny thing, right? That's a funny thing to say. She says, teacher, so glad to see you. And she reaches for him. You can imagine maybe going to hug him. And just as soon as she's reaching for an embrace, Jesus says, no, do not hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. I'm going to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Go and tell the others. Go and tell the others. It's kind of an odd moment, right? With this Jesus, this Jesus resurrected Lord, there's no time for hugs or nostalgia or good memories. He says, no, don't, don't grab me. I'm, I've got to go. I'm going on to my Father, and you need to go and tell the others. You need to go and tell the others. This idea of Jesus as teacher is probably uh, maybe not so uh, common to us, maybe not as common to those who knew him best. You know, we have a lot of titles for Jesus. Today on Easter Sunday, uh, we're thinking about Jesus as Savior, the one who saves us from sin and death, and rightly we should be. Uh, we often preach on the stories of Jesus as healer, where Jesus encounters the sick or the downtrodden, the weak, and he heals them. Uh, here in the Apostles' Creed series, we've been talking about Jesus as the Son of God, the second member of the eternally, Trinity, eternally begotten. But the most common title that Jesus receives in the Gospels is teacher. Is teacher. And so maybe it shouldn't surprise us that when Mary sees him, what she sees is her teacher, Rabuni. Uh, Diana Butler Bass has written on, on this a little bit, and she says it this way. Although Christians call Jesus by many names, those who knew him best call him teacher. Of the 90 or so times Jesus is addressed directly in the New Testament, about 60 refer to him as teacher, rabbi, great one, or master, like a schoolmaster. In the Gospels, the preponderance of action that occurs is Jesus' teaching. At the temple, on the hillside, by a lake, in a field, by a campfire, at a dinner table, at a wedding, in the city. Jesus is always teaching. And sometimes he's teaching like this, right? He's giving a sermon or he's giving a lesson, but he's also teaching when he's not teaching, like when he's eating, when he's on his road to somewhere, when he's praying. Like Jesus' whole life is a, a lesson, and his disciples are constantly learning from him, including in the resurrection, including in the resurrection. In some ways, this is sort of Jesus' final lesson to Mary, right? She sees him and she says, teacher, and the last thing that he says to her is, do not hold on to me. I'm going to the Father, and you need to go and tell the others. I'm going to the Father, and you need to go and tell the others. I think Jesus senses in this moment, right, that boy, nostalgia is a great temptation. Sentimentality is a great temptation particularly when we have come through a dark season or a challenging time. Our hope might be to go, to go back, to go back to normal, to go back to the way things were. But as Mary reaches for Jesus, he says, no, we're not, we're not going back. We're going forward to the Father. And you need to tell others. This is sort of the lesson of the resurrection, that, that God's future promises, that the good news of a future with God, that God's love and hope, that it is always out ahead of us. In the darkness of the tomb, even when we don't understand, 
we can trust in the goodness of God leading us and calling us forward. And so Jesus is teaching Mary and teaching all of us the resurrection is not about looking back. It's about looking at what is next. One of my favorite uh, writers who I often reference is Wendell Berry, and some of you have read some books of his along with me. He's a farmer and a conservationist, environmentalist, a poet. He's just a really talented and unique guy. He, he writes narrative. He writes um, kind of technical essays. He writes poetry. He has this long poem uh, called The Mad Farmer, The Mad Farmer, and you can sort of imagine what he's envisioning there. And in that poem, he reflects on the life of a farmer, the work of a farmer, our shared work and caring for our farms and our farmers. And the last thing that he says in that poem, that long poem, the final line, the instruction is this phrase, practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. Of course, Barry is a Christian and a Christian thinker, and so he certainly has in mind the themes of the Gospels, if not Easter Sunday. And I think that phrase captures so well what John is, is saying here in his Easter story. Resurrection is a lesson to be learned and a skill to be embodied. Between Jesus and Mary and the disciples and the disciples who will hear and the disciples who will hear and the disciples who will hear, Jesus continues to teach them. Sometimes, as the story begins, life is very dark. Sometimes life is very dark. And you all have seen that in your individual lives, times that were dark and painful and complicated. And yet, as the Easter story goes, the darkness itself is not the end. There is more to come. Sometimes life is hard to understand. There are facets in our life, in our faith life, in our Christianity that are hard to wrap our minds around. We just don't quite understand what's happening or why it's happening. And yet, even if we don't understand, we can still believe. That's part of the Easter story. Believing even if we don't understand. And then finally here, this last moment with Mary, as Mary reaches for Jesus, he says, no, no, do not hold on to me, but go and tell the others that I am going to the Father. That the resurrection is not about going back, it's not about going back before the darkness, it's about moving ahead with the hope of, of God's work in our lives, in and through the darkness, in and through our inability to understand. The resurrection calls us forward. And so Jesus tells Mary and tells us, I think, in the words of Barry, practice resurrection. Look through the dark. Look past your lack of understanding. Follow me and go and tell the others. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks today for the joy of this, this old story. And we give thanks for those who told us so many years ago that Christ has been raised from the dead. God, we pray today that this would not just be an ancient tale, but that this would be the good news for us. Where our lives are dark, let us remember that God is still at work. When we do not understand, let us celebrate that we can still believe. And when we see God's hope revealed, give us the courage to follow you forward into your bright future. All of these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.